1: Because a lot of our guests are new and figuring things out. So it's almost like you can kind of hear the things that they're really excited about, the things that they're really thinking through. And so making sure that our questions really give our, our guests a sense of, okay, we're in this together, like we're just
0: walking and getting a coffee. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Abina Samwa is the James Beard Award-winning host of The Future of Food Is You, a Cherry Bomb podcast network show in which she interviews rising talent in the food space. She's also behind the newsletter Your Friend in Food and always has her eye out for what's new and next. We had her on the show to talk about the future of food podcasting, spending time in Mexico City, and more. Also on the show, Matt catches up with Margie Namura, a UK podcast host with a lot to say. We hope you enjoy. Abina, this is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me, Eliza.
0: It's such a joy to talk to you, especially because I'm going to see you in person this weekend at the Cherry Bomb Cooks and Books event. But you're yeah. going to be like up on a stage, so we can't really chat.
1: I will I will send you a lot of love notes from the stage. I'll, I'll make good eye contact. Maybe we'll yes. come up with
0: a signal on this podcast and you can just give it to me then.
1: Yes. Also related, it's also both our birthdays this weekend, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I haven't had this close of a birthday twin on the podcast. So
0: Yeah, what are you gonna do for your birthday? I what are you gonna eat for your birthday?
1: Cake. I ordered a beautiful cake from from Lucy who's a who's a lovely friend. And I decided to throw like a inner child healing type birthday party by gathering all my friends at the gutter. To go bowling? Yes. Oh, I love bowling. I always wanted a bowling party. Both my siblings had bowling parties and I never got one. I, had a, I got a movie party, but... It's
0: not as good. No. How do you feel same. about having uh, bumpers when you're bowling?
1: I... No, I don't believe in the bumpers. You don't need them. Go big or go home. I love that. What kind of cake is it going to be? Uh, I think it's going to be... Lucy does this really awesome like lemon cake with like a lavender buttercream situation. So
0: I've had that before. Yeah. I think it's really great. And I had one of her chocolate flourless cakes Ooh. at a Passover Seder in the spring. That was like the platonic ideal of a chocolate flourless yeah.
1: cake. She knows her cakes. She does know She's her cakes. Egg.
0: I'm also having a cake for my birthday. But I'm very lucky because uh, I have my friend Tanya Bush that I do cake scene with, who's a pastry chef, who's making me the cake. Yeah. So I don't technically know what it is, but I do know that it's probably going to be chocolate peanut butter because that is my like most beloved flavor combination. Okay, Good to know. How do you feel about that? I love it.
1: Sweet? Yeah, if you you can bring me a slice. Okay. Of Cooks and books. If there's if there's some left.
0: Honestly, I will. That's a really <laughs> genius. That's how I get your attention. Okay. On stage. Yes.
1: I'll hold it up in the air. I'll just I'll just. That's my gonna be my treat after the talk. What are you doing for your birthday?
0: Um, I just moved, so I think I might have a couple friends over and just like eat some pizza on the ground.
1: <laughs> Honestly. Next best option.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think I need something low-key, but okay. that's the vibe. Um, yeah. And this is going to come out right after Cooks and Books, so yes. I don't mean to make our listeners jealous who didn't go, but I'm wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about what that event is and what specifically you're going to be doing there.
1: Yeah, so Cherry Bomb is a media publication that celebrates women in and around food and drink. So Cooks and Books is our annual festival that celebrates the women and people who style write, and create the cookbooks that we know and love so there's so many incredible people that are going to be at the festival on november 11th at the ace hotel if you made it thank you if you didn't we'll see you next year um and we have so many incredible guests i'm i get so excited for any cherry bomb event but we have sola is gonna be talking about her new book um we have samantha Ravatna, who has a new cookbook that just came up this week, um, Rose Wild, who's, who has Bread and Roses out in L.A., is coming out, too. I am super excited and honored because I get to interview two incredible women who have completely changed food, specifically for black women. Clancy Miller is an author, and she used to have this magazine called For, for the Culture, and she wrote this incredible anthology called For the Culture, which is about black women and femmes in the food world around the world which is so beautiful and also we will both be in conversation with dr jessica b harris who is a legend in the food world she has written over 13 cookbooks um i think the one that most people will know is um high on the hog which there's also a netflix show that she's done about that and she just has been able to offer such a rich and detailed understanding of the foodways in the U.S., particularly as they relate to the African diaspora. Um, And so it should be such a great conversation on the culture. Also, Clancy and Dr. Harris have so many things in common. They're both Francophiles. They're both only children. They both grew up in the North, in the Northeast. um, But they also both really know how to celebrate and admire women in food, especially Black women. And I think especially as a Black woman who's coming up in food, it's just like getting to talk with your heroes. So, yeah, it's it's going to be really awesome. And, yeah, I can't wait to, to see everyone who comes. And, yeah, I, I hope we get to do more stuff together soon.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to, I mean, to be at the whole event, but especially to be at that panel. I think that both of them do such a good job of, like, talking about the current moment that we're in but rooted in historical context, which I think um, it can be so easy to talk about trends and things that are happening right now in food, but to remember that like this is all part of a larger heritage and lineage is so powerful.
1: Yeah, no, that's so beautifully said. And I think they both understand the historical impact, but also the necessity to really know where we come from. I think even reading uh, Dr. Jessica Harris's uh, memoir, My Soul Looks Back, you know, she talks about very, it's almost like casual. She talks about, you know, getting lunch with Toni Morrison or Ugh. like going to James Baldwin's France house or, you know, meeting people like Maya Angelou and developing friendships with them. And to understand her proximity to people that have changed literature, it seems like she's almost trying to pave the way forward because she's, you know, unfortunately, one of the few people left of that generation that we get to to see and experience. And for her to just take such a deep appreciation for food and literature, I don't think many people... Are doing that quite yet now, especially with social media. I feel like almost a lot of food exists on social media, but it's really nice to see how she is also on social media, but also is thinking a lot about, you know, how can we create these you know, tomes and stories that, you know, we can look back on for thousands and thousands of years to come. So, yeah, I'm I'm really
0: excited. I probably will be nerding out on the stage. I mean, as you worth. should be, I feel like that's what all good conversations are. And yeah. you obviously do a lot of interviews on the Cherry Bomb podcast, The Future of Food is You. And I'm curious, like, how do you approach research for interviews? Are you going to approach this very special conversation in the same way?
1: Yeah, oh, I'm so nervous. I, I will say for most of our guests, and you've been an incredible guest on our show along with Tanya. Um, I really, We just want to hang. Yeah, <laughs> I love hanging. And I think we've talked about this, you know, off the podcast, but I think the best interviewers just come from a place of genuine curiosity. I think if you're naturally curious, things kind of flow. So it's more like I ask questions that we like to have traditions on the podcast so We always kind of start and end with the same questions, but almost throughout, it's based on what are the core things that this person is working on because a lot of our guests are new and figuring things out. So it's almost like you can kind of hear the things that they're really excited about, the things that they're really thinking through. And so making sure that our questions really give our our guests a sense of, OK, we're in this together. Like we're just walking and getting a coffee. Um, and so in terms of research, I normally just look at Instagram. I feel like it's a pretty good place to understand people's projects or I'll look at things that they've written, recipes. I'll just go down deep rabbit holes sometimes if, for the most part, a lot of our guests have been mutuals because the New York City food scene is small and big at the same time. So sometimes I'll hit up a friend of a friend like, hey, you know, so-and-so is coming on the podcast. What did you think of them? Or is there something exciting that they're working on? Or what do you love about the way that they think about food? And that gives me a good sense of like, okay, I know who they are. But I also don't like to do too much research because I like to discover things on the podcast. Like, you'll hear things about projects that people are working on or things that they're thinking about. And it all just kind, kind of comes out. So, yeah, it's definitely been a, a beautiful journey. And, you know, we're almost at 44 episodes at the end of this year, which is a huge accomplishment. So it's been a really rewarding year for the podcast. And, yeah, can't wait to interview more people.
0: Yeah, it's such a great podcast, and I think you do a really good job of bringing that curiosity to all of the different guests. So I hate to make you play favorites, but I'm curious if you've done any this year that just kind of are top of mind for you, that if someone hasn't listened to the podcast, you would suggest they start there.
1: Yeah, I love everyone— like like a mother loves all her children. I will say the one that I get a lot of love for, or the one that a lot of people reach out about saying I really love this podcast, Um, we interviewed a woman out in Mexico City named Odette Olivari. So Odette owns this gorgeous bakery, which is ep- eponymous, um, and she is just so sharp, and I think she's been able to capture the essence of like the traditional boulangerie, but also with this heart of, you know, the Mexican art of sobremesa and taking care of your community through food. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, and another one that people loved is we got to interview Becca Milstein, who's also on Taste. Um, and Becca's a dear friend. And I think Fishwife has been such an interesting way to understand food culture. I think the Tin Fish Movement was very much at the time that tin, uh Fishwife was starting up. So it's really interesting to see how Becca thinks about sustainability when your product is so trendy. Um, I would say, honestly, you guys had such a great one. I think you um, you guys being Eliza and Tanya, I think writing is such an art and a very tough art. And I think a lot of people who want to write oftentimes don't know where to start. But what I really appreciate about both you and Tanya is you talk about the joy of like community and creativity, which I don't think a lot of people realize is the key to success. Like every job, interview even getting the podcast was all rooted in community it wasn't ever like oh I want a podcast so I think you both I think gave people a lot of hope of just like if I find myself in the right places if I really hone in on the community and the people I love then it's so much easier for me to find the projects that I love too
0: yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate obviously the compliments but all of the ones that you just mentioned I think are really great episodes Thank and you. I'm gonna go back to Odette because I know that you spend a lot of time in Mexico City yes. I'm curious like how do you enjoy eating in Mexico City? I assume you go to Odette's Bakery often.
1: Almost too much. My partner—so I have this tradition where I play tennis very close to Odette's Bakery. So it's normally like, oh, wow, I've played a solid two hours of tennis. I'm going to go to Odette's Bakery. But now my partner and I are, like, trying to get our health groove on. So he's like, okay, you can only go once a week.
0: Instead or, of like, after you have a, a really good match. Yes.
1: Like, I have to, like, win, basically. So— I mean, it's not bad for me, but
0: um, what's your victory pastry there? Oh my gosh, she has
1: these incredible Queen Amands that are just like they've got that perfect like sticky layer on the top. She also has this oh, her cookies. Her cookies are what are God's gift to this earth. Whoa! Um, she has this white chocolate macadamia one and this matcha white chocolate one. Ooh, I'm probably getting emotional just talking about them, but. They're incredible. And all her other stuff is great. If I'm, like, having a party, I'll bring one of her big meringue cakes over. And it's, like, well-priced, too. Like, you can get a solid, I mean, depending on the peso-dollar exchange rate, you can get, like, a good spare of stuff for like 10 bucks there like yeah. it's pretty good i yeah. feel like
0: the cake culture in mexico city is so cool on yes. the last trip that i was there i went to um pasteleria ideal that has like oh, all yeah. of the jello cakes and the two layers if you go to mexico city this is my like biggest travel tip for people it's in central so you can yes. be in this historic neighborhood and if you go on the second floor you can look out over the bakery and yes. see people walking around with the platters and like Loading up all of the different pastries that yeah. they want. It's like watching a ballet. It's yeah. so beautiful.
1: It's also Centro has a lot of good people watching galleries. Like if you go to Sanborns, for instance, Sanborns is almost like the diner. I would say of Mexico City. It's like if you need a classic, like plate of good carb protein refried beans it's a good place but they the one they have in centro it's similar to what you're saying about Pasarilla ideal it's it's got like a square where you can people watch but also there's a really incredible balcony view so you can see this alleyway of people coming up and down to like visit around centro and it's really close to um palacio de bellas artes which is like the museum so that's really fun but to answer your question of how i eat in mexico city um it's so funny i think I've been there now long enough where when I first kind of started spending more time, they're like living there.
0: Because your your partner lives there?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I go back and forth between there and New York. But I initially was like, okay, let me check off all the restaurants and let me, let me get a really good feel of the restaurants. I feel like now I have really good restaurants. And also it's been a really good season. A lot of new restaurants are opening up. And I have like places that I just like my ride or die. So We've had a lot of friends come visit, and so we've been going a lot to Choza, which is, like, my favorite place. It feels like Cheers when I walk in there because I love Dave. They spin these incredible records on the weekends.
0: They do, and it's kind of like a Mexican-accented Thai restaurant.
1: Yes, exactly. So Tyler used to be over at um, Llama Inn and, and then, like, in the Llama group, basically. Here in New York. Yes, and so he moved out over there, and he's so great. I see him, like, I've been there in the last couple of weeks, like three or four times, and it's beautiful. It feels like you're kind of up in the city, but you're. It's just got this like rainforest element to it, and they're cooking on like these huge like open flames. And the star dish is like they have this giant fish dish that they almost serve on like a half sheet, and so it's got you know herbs, lettuces, this giant fish, and sometimes they mix it up. Like the one we just had was covered in this like spicy tamarindy type sauce. Mm. And this, like, giant heaping, like, pile of rice. So, you're just basically making these little, like, protein fishy tacos. And they have these incredible cookies as well. They're like, they almost got like a a telecherry pink pepper situation, pink peppercorn situation on top. Wow, I didn't have the cookies when I went there. They're fairly new. I think that's a new ad as of this year. But yeah, definitely, definitely get them when you go back. And then they give you, like, this really awesome cinnamon toast crunch like cereal milk to dip them in i'm not even a big milk person but it hits after you've eaten all that fish
0: <laughs> yeah i feel like cereal milk really hits yeah do you have any other like maybe one or two spots you want to shout out yeah
1: um i i'm very loyal to this place so my friends uh a few of my friends in mexico city have opened this amazing wine bar called neve it's in condesa and i love neve i feel like as When you move to a new city, it's kind of tough to kind of make friends. It's not like college where it's like, oh, you go and there's lots of people who are your age. But I'm very surprised by how much NIV has become a watering hole, particularly for a lot of like creative expats that are living in the city and also creative Mexicans too. And something I think NIV does really well is like collaborations. I think the secret to success of restaurants is like how many people can you kind of bring on board in you. So every Wednesday they have a new DJ that spins in like their cute little back room. And, they'll host events at like really cool places too. So, for instance, um, it was Mexico Design Week last month, and to kind of celebrate the end of the week, they hosted this party in in partnership with some other people at this empty like pool called La Piscina. Cool. And so like you have all two like oh huge crew of people just like dancing in this empty pool. The DJ's like in there. There's like shrubbery all around. I'm
0: dying right now because yeah. I love to throw a good unconventional party in an empty pool. It's like yeah. my dream venue.
1: Okay, Cake Scene Mexico City. I yeah. need to find a way to have it in that pool.
0: Honestly because <laughs> we were in Mexico City for Cake Scene in January yes. um, at Index Art Book Fair um, with the Casa people because they sell Cake yeah. Scene and we met this amazing baker. Her handle and her like baking mononym is Queremos Pastel. Yes. She She's a really great artist. Her name is Ananda. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just dying to do something with her. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm manifesting that for you. And also, I think something about the wines of Neve is that sometimes when you go to Mexican restaurants, you don't really see Mexican wines. And so I think they do a really good job of curating an exceptional list of, you know, Mexican wines, Spanish wines, French wines. And they have a really good menu. I think sometimes, like, a lot of restaurants that want to do one thing skimp on the other, but... The food is very like bistro quality style. Um, and then the wines pair well as well. So you can go and have like a really solid dinner with friends. And like I've been to Niv and just sat out, outside for like four hours just eating and
0: chatting and catching up with friends. So that's a, that's a favorite spot. Yeah. Okay. I have to go to all of these places. Yes. And I love hearing about how you like to eat when you're traveling, mm-hmm. I feel like travel must be a big inspiration for you in terms of the way that you kind of conceptualize food culture. Is that yeah. right?
1: Oh, one million percent. I think I grew up. So my dad is an agricultural economist. And so he spends a lot of his career traveling. Like, I think it's almost a race now between when my dad is on a plane and when I'm on a plane. I think we've racked up fairly equal miles. Um, I think for me, I think especially being in my late 20s, it's almost like I use travel as a way to kind of connect with myself. I think people use different means to connect with themselves. But the thing about travel is like no matter where you are, you kind of have to eat and you do have to eat, not kind (laughs) of. Let me make that clear. Um, But what's beautiful about travel is that you really get a chance to understand a culture through food. I don't think there's any way to understand or feel connection than through food. Obviously, you can learn the language, you can learn the cultures, but it's almost like when you get off the plane, like, what are the questions that you're asking? I love to ask, like, taxi drivers, like, where do you go to eat? And I found some incredible recommendations that way. Um, but I love that tip. Yeah, it's a good one. Also, it's just, like, it's nice to talk to people who are in service to you type of deal and and, and keep it friendly in conversation. And a lot of taxi drivers will give you good tips, too, and, like... I love that so much. Um, Yeah, I think taxi drivers
0: like to show people the city also, and they have their favorite spot, and they're excited that they get to show that.
1: Yeah, and also it's like once you kind of see where people are eating, the rest of the stuff kind of falls. Like, for instance, in San Sebastian, which is like—it's almost like their entire downtown area or like that little old—the old town part of San Sebastian is all dedicated to food. Like, each spot has a pincho. So pinchos are, for those of you who don't know, they're these like little snacks— that you just kind of eat while you're drinking and you drink them you eat them with cider or a beer and it's like you walk around this like I wanna say maybe half a mile radius. You can fact check me on that. And it's like <laughs> each place you get like a little pincho and you drink and then you go somewhere else and it's like you kinda get to watch people and how they're deciding. You get to know, oh, this is the really popular spot or this place like doesn't have as many like people, but the stuff's still really interesting. Um Mason from Turkey and the Wolf was in San Sebastian a few days before me and he obviously was like he almost kind of like did the, the span of the land for me because I we had a lot of the similar places but he was like go to this place for the cheesecake go to this place for for like that's a great the, person the to be Kassad. scouting yeah. for you. Yeah, shout out Mason if you're listening to this. Um go to this place for like the place with the sardines and the tuna and Yeah, I just think travel and food are just such great ways to explore and understand the world and feel more connected, especially if you're someone that has kind of grown up not really knowing where you're from. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's been like a very core identity to to how I would describe my my life in food. Mm -hmm.
0: So talking about travel in this way, I'm curious if you could tell me maybe two or three places you've been recently that really impacted you and then what's next of where you would like to go eat if you could go anywhere.
1: Oh, yeah. So my partner and I did, I want to say two-and-a-half road trip from Paris. Well, technically Normandy. We we stopped in Paris twice um, where we got to see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went all the way to Madrid. And this was, like, a good chunk of our July. And honestly, the whole trip was really fascinating because almost every day we were in, like, a different city trying out new things, and we got to really understand the niches of both Spanish, Portuguese, and French regions. I would say Bordeaux was, like, one of my favorite cities it's a sleepy town, but we did this incredible food tour with this woman. She has a company called Bordeaux Bites. And we basically just walked around for, like, maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And our tour guide took us to cheese shops, to charcuterie places. Um, we got, we picked up some wine. We met, we met this guy who's trying to do cheese and beer pairings. And then we walked down and sat down in this old cellar and just, like, sat there, like, sampling cheeses. And I feel like... I've loved cheese my whole life. I'm I'm very grateful that I'm not lactose intolerant. But just tasting like fresh chevre, which is like goat cheese, and it's almost like you could taste the herbs that the goats have been eating. I was like, I almost could hear like the goats bang like in the back of my brain. Psychedelic yeah. cheese. And just like tasting country pâté and all these different things. It was just like a very mind-blowing and fulfilling experience. And I think when you get to appreciate a country for the things that they're really good at, as simple as they are, that's really beautiful. Um, I also was recently in Texas, um, so the James Weard Foundation invited me out there for, they have this, um, Tasting Texas has this new festival, but a friend of mine, shout out Jessica Jin, she is a San Antonio native, and so when she heard that I was going there, she was like, oh, you have to get like a traditional Tex-Mex meal. Um, and I love Tex-Mex, I love queso, I love that, that whole vibe. Um, and San Antonio is actually a UNESCO gastronomy site because of Tex-Mex. It's like one of the places. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and so I went to this really awesome like place called Mitiera, which is like it used to be a 24-hour diner, but it was opened in the 1930s by this couple. I'm I'm I forget their name, but it was a three-table cafe for for workers who were working in San Antonio, but it's now this huge room, and it looks like you're inside of a pinata. There's just, like, <laughs> decorations everywhere. And I just sat there by myself, and um I got, like, a traditional, you know, Mexican plate with a crispy taco, a flauta, a tamale, refried beans, of course. And, yeah, had some, like, some of the best dessert I've had. So I would say those are the two that have have changed, or I've really come to appreciate food. But I'm, like every other girl on this planet, I want to go to Japan so bad. Um, I feel like it's a trip that I probably have to invest in a little more because I I know myself. Like I was talking to my partner about it and I was like he's like you're overthinking this trip because it's like I want to go for 2 weeks, but I know that I want to make the most out of every day. Whereas I feel like sometimes when you travel to Europe, it's like you can spend a day doing nothing. You'll you'll make it back at some point. But yeah, that's the the big grill for me, I would say, Japan.
0: Yeah, I think it sounds like a great place. I have friends that um, are actually finishing a two-week trip today. Oh, so nice. I will pass you their itinerary yes, just for please. your own, like, vision boarding even. Yeah.
1: I just want to ski and eat sushi, like, quality sushi in Hokkaido for the most part. Is, is that... that too
0: much to ask? No. No,
1: it definitely isn't.
0: So I, I just heard about a hot pot broth called Ho- Hokkaido milk broth. Have you had this before? I have not. Um, my girlfriend was saying it's her favorite hot pot broth, but that she's, like, never seen it in the U.S. But oh, it specifically is using Hokkaido milk, and it's supposed to be— Quite good, so yeah. maybe you can add that to your itinerary. Okay,
1: thank you. I I can't wait. Yeah, or maybe it'll come to New York at some point. Like everything does.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're talking a lot about how travel impacts you, and obviously you're a people person as well. um So this podcast you do right now is very much rooted in conversations. I'm curious, like if you could have anyone come on the podcast, who would it be?
1: Oh man, that is such a great question. I don't think I have a particular person. I think like a, a name of a person. I think I would love to have more food scientists on the show. I think a lot of food media. We've had a we have had one food scientist, Kelsey Tenney, who has Voyage Foods, which is a great company. Mm-hmm. Um but I think I want more food scientists and farmers on the show. I think I'm biased. I went I grew up in a, a college town where food food science and agriculture were really key components. And I also think they are someone that we don't really talk a lot about in the food media landscape. We talk a lot about chefs and curators and winemakers and all those things, but those two profile types are very fundamental to what we eat and how we eat the things that we eat. And so, yeah, if there are any young PhDs out there, you know, I got a podcast. Please hit my line.
0: <laughs> I have a couple ideas for you, actually. Okay. I think it's so cool. I feel like uh, food science is not something I know a lot about, but yeah. I recently was reading there was this great piece in The New Yorker about uh, the Taco Bell innovators, like the people that invented yeah. the Doritos Locos Taco. Oh, and, my gosh. Like the years of trialing that they did to figure out how to get it to fry perfectly and not break. And yeah. I was like, wow, like this has. Profoundly impacted me, and I didn't even know it was a job. Yeah, no, I
1: I was so lucky when we were in Seattle for one of our Future Food View events, we got to visit the Modernist Cuisine lab lab. And so cool, f- which is like, it's like food and science, and I it just it kind of healed my heart. I was like a kid in the candy store there, um, but Modernist Cuisine is this publication that was started by Nathan. I'm going to butcher his name, um, but he was like an OG at Microsoft, but had this deep passion for food and research and couldn't find the things that he wanted. So naturally, he started to publish Volumes. They're sick. Yeah. Like, we, we have, like, a set at home at my parents' house, and there are these volumes about, like, the fundamentals of cooking. And so they're working on a book, I will not say. I think it's out there so you can Google it. But we got to see a lot of that process. And it's just so fascinating how these scientists think about you know, it's just a cake. But how do you look at a cake and think of like all the components as they're working together? Like uh, what type of baking soda do you, you use? What kind of granules and stuff like that? So, yeah, no, I think it's so fascinating. Um, and I'm I'm very behind on my New Yorker reading. So this is a good a good way to get me back in there with this Taco Bell article. Yeah, yeah. I'll drop
0: you a link. And yeah, I, I love hearing about what you'd like to see more of on the podcast. And I'm curious, like talking about food media more broadly, um, what would you like to see more of? Yeah, no, that's a
1: great question. I think we need to see more process. I think I think a lot of friends are feeling quite fatigued over Instagram, especially food friends. I think there's a lot of pressure to be perfect and a lot of pressure to kind of figure out what style does and doesn't work. It's almost like someone can post a really good video and then it's like the al- algorithm brings you down or you post like something that you did like just with your eyes closed and it does really well and it's hard for a lot of creatives to really know what is successful when you you can't control how people are seeing your stuff. And so I think seeing more process, more writing. I love reading. I think that's it's been a huge joy of mine and I've really loved how a lot more people are also going on to Substack. So seeing like a lot I I love Alicia Kennedy's Substack, um Nicole Nicola Lamb with Kitchen Project. So I I brought back my Substack partly for, for that sort of inspiration. And, yeah, I think more writing, more process orientation, and just more fun. I think, like, people should have more fun on social media and also more appreciation for, like, different sectors of food coming together. Like, I love collaborations. I love seeing collaborations, like... More artists painting croissants or more winemakers doing more pop-ups and tastings and things like
0: that, too. More artists painting croissants. Definitely. Yes. yes. So tell me a little bit about your Substack that you just brought back.
1: Yeah. So I've – this Substack has lived so many lives. But um, I obviously am obsessed with food. And I also love to share food. I gatekeep to a certain extent. It's more of like a vibe check than a gatekeep, I would say. And so my substack is called simply your friend and food, and I just love sharing. So, it's it's part like the things that I've done that I'm really excited about. So like recipe things that I'm testing out at home, things I love to riff on, and like links that I love. So I'm still figuring out the format. Um, it comes out on Sundays. I've realized Sundays a day that I enjoy writing, and yeah. And so there's just sort of different things, and I'm hoping to grow it just. Not in like, oh, I need like 50 bajillion subscribers by the end of the year, but more just like I love sharing food with people and I feel like I've gotten to experience so much food in such unique ways and I want people to feel a connection to that. So, yeah, definitely more to come.
0: Yeah, I love the sound of that. And I think like it reminds me of what you said earlier about traveling and how you literally have to eat. I think that recommendations for recipes or techniques or just concepts are something that we all could use more of just because there are. Sometimes I feel like all I do is do the dishes and cook. Yeah. This is like all I have time to do. But I feel like anyone that can have you like be thinking about things differently, it's worthwhile.
1: Yeah. And also like I think something that I'm really priding myself on is honesty. I think there's so much content and there's so much reviewing out there. And I want to be like, look, everything that comes into this newsletter, I have tried. Like even if I'm getting I'm not getting paid for anything or any sponsors yet, but Everything that goes in the newsletter, I have like put to mouth because there are a lot of sub stacks where it's like, okay, you're recommending a gift guide, but how many of these things have you tried? Or you're recommending this, but how many things are you really like, have you really gone to experience? And so it's almost like, let me be your experience concierge. to to put it in like a, a light way. And these are things I generally enjoy. If I don't like it, it's not going to be in there. So. Um, yeah, so I'm always looking for ideas. idea. So if there's something you want me to go experience, please let me know.
0: <laughs> Hit her line. Yes, it's open. <laughs> I love that. And to close today, I want to play a little like rapid fire taste check with you. So oh, I'll give man. you some categories. You can tell me what comes to mind. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Um, go to bodega snack. Oh,
1: a chopped cheese
0: with with a lot
1: of spicy mayo. Nice. Um, favorite podcast? I'm going to be boring and say The Daily I like to know my news. It's, yeah. It's important. Yeah. <laughs>
0: favorite cookbook? Ooh. Hmm.
1: It's a tie between Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat and I will say um, The Food Lab by Kenji. Nice. Both as all. Yeah. Okay.
0: Favorite food TV show?
1: I'm a barefoot Contessa girl through and through. She's she's the best. <laughs> she's everything. She's everything to <laughs> me. Yeah. Shout uh-huh. out Ina.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, most underrated New York City restaurant?
1: I would say Wu's Wonton King. I think it's so hard. I have a really big group of college friends that are bless, blessedly still in the city. And sometimes it's really hard to find a place that will fit a party of eight without you booking in advance. And if you're smart about it, you have a friend go at like 4 p.m. to get a spot at 9 you bring some bottles of wine, there's no better place in the city to just eat with homies.
0: Yeah, I just went to a 30-person 30th birthday at Woo's last weekend, which was kind of insane, but they made it happen. I mean, they pre-booked, but the fact that you can do that at a restaurant in Manhattan, I think is kind of special.
1: And also not like, I'm someone that doesn't love like expensive birthday parties. I think it's nice to be able to have everyone come and be comfortable. And I think that's a solid place where the food's really good. You can be a little extravagant, like get a, giant pig or a bunch of giant crab legs, but still like if you just want to order a bunch of rice and, and meat dishes still, that's no problem too. Completely. Yeah.
0: And they do like kick you out when your time is up. So we did our cake in the park across the street, which I would just say is a hot tip. That worked very well. Yes.
1: No matter the time of year. It's also not not that cold, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Climate okay. change. <laughs> I know we talked about Mexico City, but um favorite Mexico City restaurant? Ooh,
1: I'm gonna have to say Contramar. It's It hits, good Sunday lunch, good friends are in town, bring the parents, impress someone. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: most used piece of kitchen equipment?
1: My microplane. Yeah, I think I can use that for
0: every single meal for the most part. Definitely. Uh, And to close, a fictional food that you most want to eat?
1: Anything Studio Ghibli. Give me it all. Yeah. The spirited away. <laughs> yes. Like,
0: I would turn into a pig for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. That that buffet goes crazy. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll manifest that for both of us. Yes. know, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Eliza. This was
1: such a treat.
2: Margie Noura, welcome to This Is Taste.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
2: Oh, well, you know what? We rarely get to talk to chefs and content creators, writers, journalists in the UK. So I want to like I'm going to be a little selfish and and we're going to tap in about what's happening in London and throughout the, the, the region and the country. But but first, I wanted to get a sense of your background. Tell me a bit about what was food growing up for you?
3: Absolutely. So I think I was very lucky looking back that I grew up in a family that really cared about food. My mom is an amazing cook. And so food was always this really important element, Uh, but not just the food itself. It was the whole process of sitting down to meals together. And I think that's where I learned that food is so crucial, not in terms of just needing it for sustenance and being this amazing thing that we can enjoy, but it's bringing people together and the conversations that you can have over food and how important that is, which actually, when I think about it, is like the very premise of of what my podcast is. It's the stories behind the food that we love and, and why it's so important to us. So I have these lovely memories of being with my mom in the kitchen, podding fresh peas, Making scones, licking the cake bowl, as I'm sure yeah. lots of lots of people can remember from when they were little. Um, but my mum, there were six of us on my mum's side, six children, so uh, it was quite a lot of children to cook for. So we had all the classic, you know, lasagnas and shepherd's pies and things that probably slightly easier to make uh, for a crowd. But then I don't know, she was just such a good cook that there are a few standout dishes that. I still make to this day. And when I think about them, I just feel so nostalgic about them.
2: Did you ever get a sense growing up that you were like living under this weight of British food being bad? And I say this with all respect. My grandfather was born in Liverpool. I have a British family. And, and really, as Americans, we have this like, rep, this like thought still to this day, like maybe it goes back to like Monty Python and how food is bad in the UK. Did you did you feel that pressure?
3: I think when you're a child, you're not really aware of any of that. But definitely as I got older, I mean, I think it's very unfair. I think it started out being quite fair uh, that, <laughs> right. that that was what people believed. But but I think now to say that is is really very unfair because it's so varied. And I think I think if people are saying that they haven't really been here and they haven't actually experienced what British food is, because British food is great. and There's so much to celebrate and so many traditions within that. Like if I you know, one of the things that my mom used to do without fail, and she was very militant about was a Sunday lunch. And I feel like that's quite a British thing. Um, having a a roast, a roast lunch every Sunday, always roast potatoes. In winter, it would be, you know, delicious roast chicken with wintry leeks and cannellini beans, homemade bread sauce. And then in the summer, the same occasion, it would always be this, this special event, but it might be Roast chicken with roast potatoes and a gorgeous salad instead. Um, so I think no, there's so much to celebrate about about British food. Um, and yeah, I feel I feel quite upset that yeah, <laughs> that, well, you're, that's still the
2: <laughs> it, well, it's an extreme tell if you're like an uncultured person if you have that take that British food is is quote unquote bad because obviously it's it's further from the truth. And and really, if you visit, you see the multicultural nature of the country, mm. but also how um you know some of the the best chefs in the world have been trained in 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 europe and are cooking there um yeah, I love the the sunday roast and and tying um food to a time of day and a week reminds mm. me of i'm I'm a Jewish, so like the Shabbat tradition of Friday night and it's something very special when everyone in culture can come together and have a meal around a specific time so you were every sunday you were, were you getting family together how does the sunday roast work
3: yeah so it's just well it's it's either sunday lunch or sunday supper and i think uh, different families do it differently but but for us it was always sunday lunch and there's something really comforting now just as a grown up even if i'm not with my mom i know exactly what she's doing on a sunday at lunchtime and i find that's just a really comforting, lovely routine. Like I think someone, I was speaking to someone recently about how, how routines like that throughout childhood that your parents sort of instill in you, it actually it actually gives you this huge sense of, of loyalty. Like it's your parents are teaching you about more than just a delicious food or an occasion. They're actually teaching you about about loyalty and what you can expect Mm -hmm. from them in in more ways than just that isolated incident, which I thought was a really interesting way to think about it. Um, But yeah, I... That's that's just what it's that's how we've always done it in our family. Yeah. And um, it's something that I now I'm doing with my husband and our children. And it just yeah, it feels like a really special thing that I, I actually look forward to it all week.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It's it's to have those traditions um, codified in your life is is special. Uh, you you studied at the world renowned Bali cookery school in in Ireland. But before that, you were at Oxford. And I'd like to get a sense of what is Oxford food like? I know that Oxford has, you know, secret societies and dinner societies and dining and food plays a role um, at the university. What was it like?
3: Well, Oxford was amazing. And um, I felt very lucky to be there at the time. But as I mean, this is a generalized statement, but I think so often late teenagers, early 20s, you don't fully appreciate what what you have, if that makes sense. So, you know, you hear so much about Oxford when you're growing up and it sort of has this magical element to it. And then you get there and you know how lucky you are to be there, but you just sort of soon take it for granted. So I definitely, when I look back now, I... I definitely have that slight feeling over it. In terms of the food, I mean we were students. So going out to eat at amazing restaurants all the time wasn't really something that we were doing. But what it did have was this amazing sandwich culture. Um, So sandwiches played a really important part in in student life. And there were these amazing sandwich shops scattered all over the town. And they'd all have huge queues outside, Um, just like absolutely amazing creations, like not a... Not a boring sandwich in sight. Just yeah, we're we talking like the... Donner
2: kebab. Are we talking about like <laughs> ham and cheese, a jambon bear? No, what, what, we're, what's we're, on the menu? We're
3: talking like bespoke, like a sandwich bar. So you can have any kind of filling that you want. It would be well, you, you'd get different ones. So there was one amazing one where it would be like delicious chicken with pesto and then all fresh salad but you choose exactly what you want and then there was another one really near our college that was more like a delicatessen but these like amazing like the best baguettes you've ever tasted just like perfectly Mm. crispy on the outside gorgeous in the middle and not too thick so sort of perfect for a mouthful and then it would just be filled with like the best the best cheeses the best hams um, and oh, I, I, we we talk about them. I mean, it's I'm such a dinosaur. It was actually quite a long time ago that I finished university, but we still talk about those sandwiches all the time. They were so good. And the hardest thing was just deciding where you were going to go that day, like which sandwich shop you right. were going to visit. Well, as a um, reminder
2: to our listeners, uh, the Earl of Sandwich, uh, born and bred in the UK, the sandwich p- potentially invented in your country.
3: Well, there you go. How can people say that um, British food is bad? <laughs> yeah, we gave right. You the sandwich. We
2: did. Yeah, I, lo- I love that story. The mythology of the sandwich and that guy who was—I think he was playing yeah. cards and needed something to eat—and and and it called his uh, probably servant is the word they probably used—and said, "Give yeah. me some food." And they ended up wrapping some mutton or something meat in bread, and there you go—the Earl of Sandwich namesake.
3: What a great invention! I'm a huge sandwich fan, so. Yeah, I'm very grateful th- for that day that he did that. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> tell me about the Bali Cookery School. What's what's that like? You know, it's one of the world's you know most renowned spots, and I know some of uh, you know our greatest chefs in America have trained there. Um, Abra Barons comes to mind, a great chef in West Michigan. She was there. W- tell me about it.
3: Ah, oh, it's just amazing. So, I guess I, there's like a bit of a story as to how I ended up there because I actually was training to be a lawyer. So when I left Oxford I thought that I don't know having gone somewhere like that I should go and do something very serious and carry a briefcase and wear a suit um and I tried I did try quite hard to become a lawyer I wouldn't necessarily recommend um getting a masters in law as a good route to becoming a chef but it got it got me to where I was eventually um and uh yeah so I had a decision to make as to whether I was going to carry on doing law or whether I was going to focus on my, you know, true passion, which is food. And uh, I went to Isla, which is this amazing island off the west coast of Scotland. And it's so beautiful. And it's one of those places where you just feel a million miles away from anything else. And when I was there, I just had this, I don't know, it sounds a bit woo woo, which I don't Mm. think I am in general, but I just had this just overwhelming feeling of why am I trying so hard to do something that I I really don't care about law. Mm-hmm. Like I, it would only ever be a job. And yet food is all I've ever really cared about. And I love to cook and I love to try different dishes and it's, you know, it consumes my whole life. So why would I not try and make that, you know, we're at work more than we're not at work. So it makes sense for that to be what I did for work. Um, but having decided that, I really wanted to go to Ballymaloo. So I rang them and I I told them this beautiful story of my epiphany. And they said, oh, well, that's great. Um, but we're oversubscribed. We've got, you know, 100 people on the waiting list. You'll have to come this time next year um which was devastating in that moment and yet an hour later they rang back and they said this never happens but just after we put the phone down someone came into the office and they've dropped out and if Mm. you can come on a plane tomorrow morning you can come
2: wow Trial by fire at the highest level (laughs) honestly jump right in
3: but it's just um it's the most amazing place so for anyone who doesn't know it's this it's um an, an incredible cookery school set on a on a on an organic farm wow. um, so yeah. it's really immersive you stay on site in these little cottages yeah uh, so you get up really early in the morning and they set you to work making stock and you know making bread and all the things that the students are going to need throughout the day and then you're cooking all morning and then in the afternoon you're basically at, at lectures watching people cook what you're going to make the following day And it's just, uh, it's just, it's amazing. It's only three months, so it's quite intensive. Um, And it's definitely a jumping board for what you want to do afterwards. As they they say all the time when you're there, if you really want to take cooking seriously, then um, you need to go and work in a restaurant and consolidate everything that you've learned whilst you're here. But it definitely, it felt really exciting for me personally, because it, it was really nice to realize that I was really passionate about mm-hmm. something, and having spent time reading geography at Oxford, where I just, you know, I missed, I missed a lot of lectures, and uh, I just wasn't fully engaged. Yeah, and then you to found go, your
2: love. You found your real love. Yeah, yeah, which
3: is such an exciting thing, and I think lots of people find that when they go to Bali because yeah. it's just such a special place, Sounds and good. the food. The food in Ireland itself is amazing. Mm-hmm. The produce and um, and yeah, it's just such a beautiful place to spend time. So I was just in
2: London, and I just want to go over what I what I ate because I want <gasps> I want you to give me a sense did I do, did I do it right? What am I missing? And, and follow up is gonna be like, what do, can't we miss? So I went to Rambutan. Oh my god, <laughs> just mm-hmm. love love that new spot in Borough Market, and uh, we've had Cynthia on. Um, I St. John bread great obviously lunch there Uh, the the Beagle Bake which is um, you know the brick beef or the salt beef um, bagel shop that is like a close cousin to Katz's I would say in New York Oh do you
3: think, would you rate it up there with that on a level?
2: It's a very unique thing so this salted beef let's get into that Uh, I I was new to it like so it's basically it's an uncured salted beef um, on top of a bagel smeared with um, a very spicy mustard um, you could say, yeah, it's kind of like like corned beef in a way. Um, no, I wouldn't put it up there to be honest. It wasn't Wasn't <laughs> on the level. Of cats, because cats is pretty much the top of the mountain.
3: Well, yeah, but the hard.
2: Yeah, but I liked it. I I like, and that that Jewish section of Brick Lane is really interesting mm-hmm. to me. What do you think about it? Uh, that 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 dish.
3: Yeah. I mean, I've been to Katz's and so, and like, as you say, that's a high, that's a high bar. So i was just wondering where it's at in comparison yeah. to that. But no, I agree. Delicious. I think that as a concept is always going to be delicious. Um, I mean, I'm sure you can get bad ones, but, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, nothing can compare to Katz's Deli, can it?
2: And so I went to Brat, and I had I thought that was like an outstanding meal, like all wood fired, open fired cooking. Is Brat still so good in your eyes, or are we, yeah. have we moved on so, from Brat?
3: No, no, we never move on from Brat. Brat's Brat's incredible. No, it sounds like you. How long were you in London? Ah,
2: for? uh, forty eight hours. I I okay, I, I, so you, I went pretty hard. I must say.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you did pretty you did pretty well. I think. Yeah,
2: and then I went to Jolene too, and mm. Jolene Bakery. Um, uh, to me. Cool ass merch for sure. So that's one. But mm. second, wow, exceptional. The one on the east side yeah. that I went to was nice. So
3: Yeah. It's really good... nice. Oh yeah. no. You did um you did really well. You fitted a lot in.
2: So Margie, what did I miss though? I want to get your take. What's what's happening right now with the food scene in London?
3: Wow. I'm not sure about the food scene in general, but I have I have been to some amazing places recently. Um I don't know. Have you ever been to Jacconi?
2: No, I haven't. What is that? Oh,
3: it's it's incredible. It was started by the chef called Ravinda Bogle about five years ago. And she describes the food as Asian fusion food. But it's sort of Asian comfort food with British and African and Middle Eastern twists. And it's so incredibly good. I think one of their claim to fame is that they're the only carbon neutral independent restaurant. But what that means is that they've got this amazing relationship with a local farm. And so the produce is incredible. And she's also she's a brilliant food writer as well. And I've followed her for years. Um, But she's so Creative and really delicate with her cooking, and that was that was a standout meal. It was amazing. I think it's actually one of Stanley Tucci's favorite places to eat.
2: Oh wow, yeah, local. He's living there these days. Good old yeah. Stanley. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: <laughs> and 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 also in
2: general, is there like a is there a trend happening right now with style of service or with a, with like is there like a big cuisine or culinary movement that you're seeing?
3: Um, I don't know whether something interesting that I think is happening that I've been reading about a lot and just observing is I think African food is beginning to have a moment which feels really exciting because I don't know about you but I I feel like it's definitely been underrepresented underrepresented in the UK for a long time and that feels like it's changing like there's Um, Ikoyi, which is, it's got a Michelin star. Um, I'm going there next month. So I haven't been, but I've heard amazing things. And that the foundations for that are all sub-Saharan, West African. And it sounds amazing. Um, So I think that's something that's really exciting. It's definitely getting... As a cuisine, it's getting more airspace and more words written about it, which, um, yeah, it's always good to see something like that happening, I think. Yeah.
2: Uh, same in New York, you know, sub-Saharan African cuisine is is certainly um, getting more attention from media, which thankfully it's been long overdue. Restaurant yeah. in Brooklyn called Department of Culture is, is a place uh, run by Nigerian chef. And I feel there's just uh, we're just starting this era. So I'm happy to hear that's happening in London as well. Um, let me ask you, what was the best thing you ate this week?
3: The best thing I ate this week. Oh, there's a really amazing restaurant near me called Chet's, which I actually, I need to look it up because I think, um, I think the guy actually started in LA um, and it's, um, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, It's fusion food, so you have like an amazing burger, but it's spicy. It's got heat. Um, they do an amazing fried crispy rice salad, which Mm. is so yeah, super spicy. It's got all the contrast of flavors going on and and textures. And it that that rice crispy rice salad at Chet's is one of the best things I've had for ages. Delicious.
2: Chet's is on the list. Um, have you been to D'Ambrosi? Do you know Andrew D'Ambrosi? He has a, a a restaurant in Chelsea. Um and he's a former he's an American chef. He was on top chef season like three. Do you know about this place?
3: No, I don't. I feel like I should do.
2: You should know and I'm I'm just going to shout it out now. I went and visited him and I should have mentioned that on my on my visits. But Andrew is um he's doing he's got a place in the Cotswolds. That's like his main home base. But he's got his place near the Chelsea High Street and it's really, you know, he's such a ta- tactical chef in in the best way. No that doesn't read delicious, but it's it's beautiful food that's so smart. He's doing um a fried chicken sandwich that I felt was exceptional and just like cool. the amount of salads that uh, he's putting out there in the case um there's it's really exceptional work um and mm. forgetting some of the other dishes he's doing but yeah just want to give him a shout
3: yeah, there's another amazing young chef um, called Jackson Boxer, um, and he's got a beautiful restaurant which is just off Portobello. It's called Orsay, and the focus is definitely it's seafood heavy, but like the most amazing quality. And he's just he's he's like I think he's a real. I mean, he's not a rising star because I always think that's actually quite insulting. Like he's he's already he's already arisen. Um, he's a star, uh, but yeah, his food's absolutely amazing. And I think he's now opening A few different. Well, he has different restaurants of different names, and he's got one in the countryside somewhere. Uh, But yeah, he's definitely one to look out for. Jackson Boxer. Jackson
2: Boxer. Well, this is great. We're giving our listeners um, a sense of what's happening in London right now. Let me ask you: Who do you read in British food media? I feel like there's definitely um, been um, a real swell of of quality journalism coming out of the UK. It wasn't always that way, Um, but I'm curious who you're into right now.
3: That's a good question. I mean, I read cookbooks kind of like they're novels. (laughs) So, um, and I spend a lot of time researching all the guests that I've got on the podcast. That's like a really important aspect to me. So I get really engrossed in whichever food writer I'm interviewing. So I've I've just interviewed Diana Henry, who I don't know. Is Diana Henry very well known in the US?
2: Yeah, for sure. We've published Diana Henry's books um, for years and um, definitely um, has, has a following, I think, some of the some of the imports to the US have different levels of success. Like Yoda Matalongi is like obviously the most successful recently, same with Jamie Oliver. But yeah, it's it yeah. she's great. Yeah.
3: She's amazing. Um, and she's, I think she's written 13 cookbooks now. Yep. Um, but I love, I love her food writing. I love her recipes. I love her way with words. And the same with, um, I mentioned in the restaurant with Ravinda Bogle, but I always really enjoy reading anything that she's written. But in terms of um, like food media, there's a really great food newsletter in the UK called Vittles. Have you come across Vittles?
2: Absolutely. I was h- hoping yeah. you would mention Vittles and Jonathan Nunn. Yeah. Uh, Um, who who I've interviewed several times. had dinner with him when I was in London um, a few weeks ago. So let let me ask you about Vittles. I think it's been a huge moment for food media right there with Vittles.
3: Yeah, it definitely has. Like a newsletter that gives voices to people who might traditionally have been ignored by old school food media and just talking about really interesting topics that wouldn't be published anywhere else. I think it's definitely, it feels very exciting. Like it's, I think people have, not necessarily in terms of the content, but in terms of the importance of um of what they're doing. People have compared it mm-hmm. to like the beginning of Lucky Peach. Um and it does it does feel like a big, a big moment in yeah. the food media space. Yeah,
2: the scope too is expanded and now there's a lot of local coverage and restaurants in mm. in the UK, but also the big sweeping features and packages that Jonathan and team are doing. It's it's great work. And I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Let me ask you about your own home cooking. I have two questions. One, you know, what do you like to make when you have only 30 minutes?
3: Okay. So I've been a chef. over a decade now um but you know when you come back from a really long day standing on your feet cooking for other people the last thing you want to do is spend ages cooking so I actually think I've mastered the art of very quick delicious dishes and I think that's what we all need on a weeknight to the point where I'm actually about to launch a newsletter around that very topic just easy weeknight recipes that you can make when you're short on time Um, and that just maximum results for minimal effort Uh, so my it's my favorite kind of cooking I think Um, and my favorites being maybe a butter roasted salmon uh, served with giant couscous that you've tossed with plenty of herbs really garlicky bursting olive oil tomatoes and then maybe a dollop of tzatziki on the top Mm -hmm. that's pretty hard to beat or a very good steak, just cooked perfectly pink, basted with lots of garlic and rosemary, and then served with something like a really quick cannellini bean mash and some lemon chili tender and broccoli. Oh, the Those
2: mash. We got to the mash so portion yeah. of the program. I'm I'm really happy you brought <laughs> up the mash because the mash is, is something that I think we all love when it's done well and has a nice amount of butter in it and i love that you're roasting salmon putting putting a sauce on it uh creme fraiche or any kind of tajiki or yogurt sauce to me is a great way to you know make a salmon that maybe is like mid to maybe not so great in quality which does happen all the time i I cook it myself i'll get a frozen piece Um, but it makes it really good when you can add a little Mm. nice sauce to it
3: i think that's something like when I was cooking in the restaurant, we always had, whether it was creme fraiche or yogurt, loosened with a little bit of lemon juice and seasoned. And that drizzled over salads, salmon, grilled meat, whatever, like it can completely elevate a dish. And it's such a simple yep. little trick.
2: Yep. It's really smart. Okay. So Martin, mm-hmm. tell me when you want to ball out and you have a dinner party, which is certainly part of your... Your show is a, is a guest dinner party um, and, and all the, the beauty that goes into a dinner party. Tell me, what are you making when you want to really just, you know, go big?
3: Okay, well, my dinner parties always tend to be quite relaxed and informal affairs. And I I like doing a dinner party where I bring lots of dishes to the table and then everyone helps themselves. So there's always going to be a main course, but then there's always a whole load of really gorgeous salads and sauces and everyone can kind of make their own plate. That's the kind of food that I just I love to eat. And it's the kind of food that I, I love to serve. I'm definitely very guilty of being an overfeeder. So yeah. there's always a lot of food. <laughs> yep. Um, but something something like a slow cooked shoulder of lamb, I just think that's quite hard to beat when it's melting off and um, melting and falling off the bone maybe served with something like dauphinoise potatoes buttery greens a garlicky yogurt and then something a bit earthy like a beetroot and balsamic salad just to counterbalance all of that richness i like, love potatoes yeah.
2: dauphin i love that you bring that up oh. that is if you get the mandolin going you've mm. got a nice amount of butter in your fridge you're going to be yep. set with that dish it's a good one
3: and and those are also great things. Like I definitely, I have everything prepared the day before. Yep. Um, so yeah, definitely things that you can get ahead with. And then then it's just a case of putting it in the oven or like even with the lamb, you just want to get that whole thing done. You can shred it, pop it in the fridge. And then when you're ready, you just gently reheat. I think people are scared of reheating food um but we shouldn't be scared cuz you know when you're working in a restaurant you know say you're serving a risotto you've you've prepped that earlier in the day and it's 95% cooked and then when someone orders it you're just finishing it beautifully in the pan so i think people shouldn't be afraid of like reheating is like a bit of a dirty word and mm-hmm. a bit unappetizing no, but no. you're just you're just making your life easier it's, it's like, the same with the same with roast potatoes you want to get them done and then you just warm them through when you need them. And then okay, let me no ask you about stress. that. When you have yeah. ro- when
2: you roast potatoes ahead of time, how are you storing them? Yeah
3: just just cover them put them in the fridge like yeah. nothing bad will happen bring them out to room temperature really nice hot oven and and yeah you'll be good to go yeah i do that all the time get
2: that oven to like 450 make sure it's clean so you don't smoke up your house and then yeah you get the reheating of potatoes is definitely super chill you just also never microwave potatoes please
3: no please that, you can have a very sad potato very sad
2: it. yeah <laughs> um on this is taste we asked guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and mm. furious taste check. Are you ready, Margie?
3: I don't know. Okay, yes, I can do this. I'm okay, ready.
2: I know you can. The best AM pastry with coffee?
3: Um, An almond croissant.
2: The best dessert?
3: It has to be tiramisu.
2: Oh, nice. I mean, what makes a good tiramisu? Is it the booze or is it the cream?
3: Not too much booze. The cream is obviously very important. And I don't want the fingers too soggy.
2: Agree hard. I think they need to be crisp and you need to actually realize your fingers so they don't disintegrate, you know.
3: Yes. Yeah. Totally agree.
2: The best bread, hands down.
3: Ooh. um, I think that's got to be a freshly baked baguette, like a really, really good one. I think that's hard to beat.
2: Real hard. Your favorite dinner party dish to make as a host.
3: Um, the, the slow roasted lamb I've yep. already talked about or something like my go-to is roasted chicken thighs with the bone in the skin on lots of salt on the top, get them really nice and crispy. They just, they never let me down.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up They're They're pretty much idiot proof. Um, when yes. you get like the high fat content cut, like the thigh and the bone, always on the bone, not the boneless. If you can yeah. help it, you can like definitely mess those up, like cook them like 30 minutes over and they still will taste great.
3: Yeah, they'll still be perfect. They're so good. And you can just serve them with so many different things. Uh, Yeah, they, as I said, they never let you down.
2: Never let you down. Your favorite dinner party dish to bring as a guest?
3: I think maybe it would be a pudding or dessert. um, Because I think that's something that can stress people out when they're hosting and maybe they haven't always got time for. So taking maybe a big tray of brownies, that always goes down well.
2: Brownies, wow. I feel that is like truly one of the most American pastries around.
3: Oh yeah, do you think so?
2: Maybe not. If you want to claim ownership, let's go. Let's no. do it. <laughs> no,
3: no. That probably yeah, you no. you're probably right. No, I'm kidding. I, I, love- don't, I have
2: no idea. It could be like it could be something that was created in like, you know, in in like in manchester you know back in
3: no i think no i think you are probably right but i think like a little like a canapé sized brownie with filled with white chocolate chunks just like nice and squidgy in the top but slightly crispy on the uh, um squidgy in the middle and crispy on the top just perfection
2: soigné chef wow what a brownie (laughs) dang um the absolute essential bottle of booze to have on hand
3: I love a gin and tonic, so it would have to just be a really good bottle of gin. I love Hendrix.
2: Nice. The Hendrix choice. I like that one. Not Plymouth. Okay.
3: Into it. (laughs) That's good too. No, no, no.
2: It's it's a good (laughs) choice. The most overrated piece of kitchen equipment.
3: Oh, the most overrated. Okay. I don't have an air fryer, but it's all anyone's talking about. And I have to wonder, are they worth the hype? But then I kind of want one, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, maybe an air fryer.
2: Mileage will vary with the air fryer. I'll just say that. If you if you literally okay. if you don't have an oven, it's amazing. If you like are on the road yes. and you just have a plug, it's amazing. But you know, oh, that's
3: true. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, like that. for yeah, camping. That would be order. very useful. Yeah,
2: yes, totally. Okay. Super useful. Um, the most underrated piece of kitchen equipment.
3: I think it's got to be my microplane. I use my microplane every day for lemon zest, parmesan, garlic. I just It's out all the time. Love a good microplane.
2: Great call. We've actually asked this question to dozens and we've never had the microplane come up. And, oh,
3: you haven't. <laughs> but I use it
2: myself all the time yeah. and I feel so connected to my microplane or that's like mm. a proper noun. What's the, is it called a grater?
3: Oh yeah, you're right. It's like a the Hoover, or the Dyson, right? Or exactly, um, like the Dyson. Yeah, yeah. No, they've really captured that market. They sure that we have. We only know it as the microplane. No, it's but, it's yeah. a great
2: tool. Um, do you yeah. like it? Do you? What do you? What do you use it for? Let's just go there. What's the utility there? Wow.
3: Well, do you know? I think like this is a very good tip. When you're doing when you're grating garlic on a microplane, you don't even have to bother peeling it. If you just start grating it, the skin just comes off, great which call. is. A very good time-saving hack, but yeah, like I said, I mean, zesting citrus, uh, grating parmesan, like I mean, garlic. I use so much garlic in my cooking. I absolutely love garlic. Yeah, and grated
2: garlic is the is the jam, and not so having good. to deal with knife cuts. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally, so totally. totally. Uh, a couple more. Your favorite recent cookbook discovery.
3: Wow, I'm very lucky that I do get sent a lot of amazing new cookbooks because of my job. Um, So I feel a bit spoiled in that sense. But I've actually recently been going back over old favorites, um, reading lots of early days of Nigel Slater um, and reading Nora Ephron for the millionth time, which I'll just never, never get bored of. But there's something about the classics and the old school way of writing that I just, it just really appeals to me.
2: Yeah, uh, what about uh, a classic cookbook? Is there one that you just always go to?
3: Um, I I wouldn't say I like I don't use this for cooking a lot, but I do refer to it a lot for its its uh, writing, and that's got to be Nigella's How to Cook. I think if I, I could pick one cookbook that meant a lot to me, I think that was the first cookbook that I really read, where it just her way of writing really resonated with me, and I realized. I realised that all of the things that I thought about food, I wasn't alone, and actually that there was this whole world out there, um, mm. and that felt really exciting. So I think that book will always be very important to me.
2: Yeah, Nigella, her her, her real her chops, her writing skill and style is is underrated. You know, we we know yeah. her as this personality, Friends of Bourdain, all that stuff, but man, great, great terrific writer, absolutely
3: amazing writer. Yeah.
2: Last question: <gasps> You invented this your country men your, your 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 culture the sandwich we're back to where we started your favorite sandwich of all time
3: matt this is such a hard question and it's one that i ask every guest so i feel very hypocritical to say that it's hard but it is i love i love all sandwiches and so i have a lot of favorites but i think if i had to pick one I would pick the BLT because um, it's just one of the first proper sandwiches that I remember having. And I feel like the BLT was a bit of a gateway sandwich for me and it just opened up this whole world of delicious sandwiches. And I think the secret to really good BLT is a very garlicky aioli and then just a little bit of basil in there. So a a few fresh basil leaves. Yeah, the BBBLT. I
2: was going to say, we're adding (laughs) adding a letter there, but (laughs) to Italianify the BLT is is certainly uh, not a bad choice. Absolutely love it. Margie Namora, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This Is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.